This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Health equity and behavioral health are among the priorities federal officials are addressing in this phase of recovery from the Maui wildfire disaster. This week, we talked to the Region 9 Administrator of the Health and Human Services Department, Jeffrey Reynoso, was on the Valley Isle earlier this week and stopped by our studio yesterday afternoon. The trip to Maui just really added a lot of context for me personally to be there with the impacted communities on the ground and really understand from a lived perspective how we're going to rebuild. We really believe that when we think about Maui Strong, that it's not just a tagline, but it's the eventual outcome of the recovery effort. So as we shift from response to recovery, and we really think about the on the ground needs. How we think about it is obviously the long-term recovery in Lahaina will be that physical infrastructure. And in addition to that, as the Department of Health and Human Services, we really think about the health and human services infrastructure. So what I heard when talking to impacted community there is the enormous need for behavioral health services. You know, this was a traumatic event for the Lahaina community, Maui, Hawaii as a whole. And as the federal government, we want to be a partner in the work of expanding and continuing to think about expanding behavioral health services to the community so that we can rebuild more resiliently, right, uh, into the future. And so what does that look like? I mean, because you think of the children, right, that lost their schools and are trying to make the best of a you know bad situation. The Army Corps of Engineers is working on a new campus and so there's an adjustment there. You know, they're, so they're they're going to be uprooted uh, again, you know, when they get to another location. So yeah, how do you deal with the mental health needs of of the our young people? Through our assistant administration for preparedness and response, ASPR, and our SAMHSA division, which is our substance abuse and mental health administration, we are embedding behavioral health specialists into educational settings in Maui and working with students as well as educators to provide training and technical assistance to be able to support those mental health needs. It's also, you know, as I was in Maui, there's also a need for the responders, right, and the broader community to avail themselves of of these services. And so we're there to provide that support, but we're really thinking about this as community telling us what they need, the county of Maui, the state, and we're really there to kind of build the scaffolding and be that support infrastructure, whether it's specific requests for technical assistance or a specific request for behavioral health specialists on the ground to support and build on the existing workforce that's already in Maui. And I just know that, you know, it's been a challenge in some communities to hire is the option of, you know, bringing in people to staff these slots if they aren't available locally. Yeah, you know, I think our ASPR recovery team, as they're hearing what the needs are and they're contracting with behavioral health specialists, they were really thinking about what are the language needs, like ensuring that folks that we bring into the community understand the multiple language needs that are needed, have those cultural competency, sensitivity, cultural humility to be able to meet the needs. But it's a challenge. You know, the healthcare workforce issues are incredibly hard in a recovery setting. And the secretary, as he's traveled across the country, actually, has understood that we really need to do better as HHS to address those needs. So we actually launched an effort agency-wide, the HHS Health Workforce Initiative. It's co-chaired by our HRSA administrator, and HRSA funds a lot of our federally qualified health centers. So we're really looking at an all of HHS strategy for healthcare workforce. It's going to be a long-term effort, but we're really committed to resolving these workforce issues across the country, but particularly in places like Maui and Hawaii. Well, you know, I know that we've all looked at the Paradise wildfires, you know, in California, the lessons learned there and what we can apply over here. But I don't know. I mean, did they have a rapid response team over there when, when that community was devastated with wildfires? I mean, I don't know if DHHS responded to that at all. What I'll say is we learned a lot during COVID. And one of the structural actions that we took as HHS is to shift 
our response team, which was before the pandemic, a staffing division, it got elevated to an operating division. So what that really means is our ASPR, our Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response, now has the funding staff support to really respond to the fires that you mentioned in California, the fires here in Maui, multiple other disasters across the country. And as an operating division, they're able to respond more swiftly and work with our federal agency partners, FEMA, HUD. You know, it's going to take an all of government approach, federal government, working with state government, local government to effectively respond to these man-made natural disasters. The other thing that I'll mention that's been you know, I think a learning over time is in order for something to work from a recovery perspective, it really has to be community informed. We really have to do a lot more listening with community members, with our government local partners so that we can deploy the best possible response and really think of disaster response as an opportunity to rebuild stronger. You will be uh, speaking at a uh, conference uh, later this week. What are your priorities and for the the community in general, you know, with with uh, with some of the programs that you folks administer? The Biden-Harris administration, HHS Secretary Javier Bazar have made it a priority to expand healthcare access across the country. We really have doubled down on the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, we're really pleased today. We actually announced that over 20 million people have selected plans on the affordable health care marketplace across the country. This is the most ever. And there's a couple of reasons for this. One is we have invested in ensuring that those marketplace plans are affordable. So through the Inflation Reduction Act, we were able to extend some additional tax benefits uh, for Americans that are searching for a plan uh, on the health care exchange. And about four and five Americans can find health insurance plan for $10 a month or less if they're they're shopping for coverage and you know I think that's you know peace of mind for folks right to be able to access you know the the healthcare that they need but in order for this to work you know the secretary often likes to say we're not waiting for the American people to come to us. We're going to the American people. And as part of this last cycle, over $100 million in dollars were awarded to Navigator Awards. So these are health navigator organizations that these are individuals that go out into communities in multiple languages and are able to share some of the, the tax benefits so that folks know how to sign up. You know, health insurance is incredibly complicated. We will want folks to find the best insurance options for them. The second kind of area that we've been really tackling on the healthcare access priority has been Medicaid renewals. So this was an effort, you know, during the pandemic, an effort to keep as many people on Medicaid. So these are low-income individuals enrolled in um, here in Hawaii's Quest, right, in, in Quest coverage. We paused what's called the annual renewals process with the state. And as part of the ending the public health emergency, we had to restart that process, right? So we've been working really closely with with our state Medicaid agencies, Quest here in Hawaii, to ensure that people don't fall off of, of coverage and they know that, you know, they have to respond to a form, update their contact information. So they have to take action. That's exactly yeah. right. Okay. You know, there's something called an ex parte process where, you know, through federal, through data sources, the state's able to uh, verify that income process. But for many, you, you have to submit additional information so that you keep your quest coverage. There are organizations that are out there to help, you know, federally qualified health centers in particular, community health centers uh, often have outreach assistance mm-hmm. and, and they're able to help community members kind of walk through that process. And what can you say about some of these underserved communities, particularly here, you know, where we've got a lot of the COFA migrants, the families that come over here from Micronesia that are covered under the Compact for Free Association? Yeah, that's a great question. I know it's a issue of particular importance here in Hawaii. As part of making health equity real within the healthcare system under the president, Secretary Becerra, we were able to expand coverage for COFA migrants so that they're eligible for Medicaid benefits. And so we are getting the word out. You know, I think that's an incredible development that we're able to expand that coverage option for COVID migrants. Yeah, because I mean, I think we saw, you know, during COVID where those communities were disproportionately affected, you know, in Arkansas, where there's a large community, right? And yet they weren't eligible for like the death benefits that FEMA was offering because of this political 
category that they were under. So it's a challenge. And then the communities where these migrants live, Hawaii, Guam, you know, the whole reimbursement issue comes up because it falls on the local governments to, you know, provide the services that these people need. We're always looking at opportunities to expand and and do better. And, you know, I think we were really just pleased to be able to expand that coverage through that provision. In order to make health equity real, you mentioned the COVID migrant community here. Language access is particularly important. We've been thinking about how do we expand access to services because access to health care goes beyond just being able to show up to the doctor does or your health care provider. Does your provider understand your language, understand your culture? In November, the Department of HHS, we released our HHS language access plan to provide guidance and action steps to all of our family of HHS agencies to be able to better work with communities. It goes beyond language translation. One great example, our CMS division, as we did our Medicare open enrollment period, we were able to share information in 15 most common languages across the country. And so these are important steps. We know we need to do more, but we're always thinking about how we are able to increase access from a health equity perspective. The second area that I wanted to mention, and going back to, we were talking about long-term recovery in Lahaina and Maui and the broader community. You know, mental health is health, period, for this administration, for the secretary. We've been able to stand up a new website called findsupport.gov. It is consumer friendly and you're as an individual, as a community-based organization, are able to navigate what services are available to you to be able to access behavioral health, mental health services. Top of mind for me right now is our National Disaster Distress Hotline. So this is a 24-7 hotline, and anyone who has experienced any type of loss or is in a moment of crisis can call up that hotline and, and receive the support that they need. And for those that are in an acute moment of crisis, we were able to invest a billion dollars nationally to stand up and transition into an easy to remember crisis response hotline 988. So if you are in crisis or know someone who is, dialing 988, it could be over the phone. Also chat is an active feature and we're building it out into additional languages and also ensuring that we're supporting the crisis response system locally who are the ones that are actually picking up the line. That was Jeffrey Reynoso of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Region 9 office in San Francisco. Uh, he's taking part in the Hawaii State of Reform Health Policy Conference uh, that gets underway today in Honolulu, and he spoke with us after visiting Maui earlier in the week. Support for HPR comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, celebrating 75 years of preparing Hawaii's future business leaders for global opportunities. Scheidler.hawaii.edu Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Cheryl Crowder, author of Surviving the Storm, a workbook for telling your cancer story. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the journey of cancer survivorship. Sunday morning at 11. Our Maui Nui reporter, Catherine Cluett-Pactel, joins us this morning to talk about the recently formed Lahaina Community Land Trust. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. Yeah, so, so this trust was created out of a concern about Maui's future. It was. You know, we've heard the phrase, keep Lahaina land in Lahaina hands. And that's really the main goal of this organization, to preserve the community's character, to give folks options who find themselves in a place where they need to sell their land in Lahaina, and also to create a vehicle to buy back land from off-island landowners in Lahaina who may want to cut ties after the fire, and this would give a an opportunity for that land to go back into community hands. It was recently officially established as a nonprofit, but it's in, been in conversation since 
you know, just the days after the fire, Carolyn Alvaloa is community Lahaina Community Land Trust board member. And she says the goal is to have everyone stay in Lahaina, of course, and rebuild. But she knows that that may not be possible for everyone. We're familiar with what a lot of them are facing with regards to having a mortgage on a house that no longer stands, how expensive land is in Lahaina, and how it might be very difficult for some people to be able to hold on and stick it out. And it's not something everybody likes to talk about. I think we all hope for the best and want to see everyone be able to stay. But the very real reality is that there are people with lots and lots of money that see Lahaina as the golden egg. And we were worried that folks that are having a hard time struggling financially would feel like they don't have any other choice. And we know what it is to love this place, but be stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so we just started to think about what could be done. What could maybe be possible to give people another option? A lot of people that we knew were already getting approached by people trying to buy property. That just further kind of galvanized, I think, the feeling for like, man, we have to try and do something. We can't just not try I mean, I see, yeah, their heart is in the right place, but how does that work? I mean, they don't have money, do they? They are working on fundraising, and they, everyone that I spoke to who's involved, uh, you know, they're, they recognize that they don't have all the answers. It's very much a, a work in progress, a development, an exploration of what is legally possible. And they're not speaking for you know, the whole community, they're not trying to make decisions for all of this land, but they stress that they're holding space and creating this process for the community to be able to decide future use of land that becomes available in Lahaina. So they, you know, they recognize they're one of many community organizations looking at these types of solutions. They want to create partnerships to meet those goals. It is the only land trust organization, though, that is doing the type, looking at the type of solutions that they are. So, uh, you know, we're familiar with with conservation land trusts, we're familiar with affordable housing land trusts, and this is a little bit different. Uh, We can talk about that in a minute, but it's also a good option to buy back land, uh, again, from landowners, off-island property owners in Lahaina who may just be ready to sell off. And the ultimate goal is to be able to give that option for people who have to sell and don't want to see their land fall into the wrong hands. Tamara Poulton is board president of the Land Trust and also a West Maui uh, County Council member. We just wanted to try and hold space for folks if they have no other option and they need to sell or they need to move away for a little while for whatever reason. We want to be able to, like, you know, hold their space for them until they come back. I have heard from some folks the manner in which they escaped, at least at this time, they don't see themselves coming back to Lahaina because it was so tragic and horrific how they got out that it's kind of traumatic to think about coming back. They may not want to rebuild in Lahaina, but they don't want to be a sellout, you know, and so this is an option for folks to sell in and know people from their community will have an opportunity. Maybe, you know, there's elderly folks that maybe they don't have any heirs. They want to just give their land to the land trust. That would be awesome. Maybe there are investors that want to buy land for the land trust. That would be awesome. In some ways, it would be similar to Nahale Omawi, which is an existing land trust to keep properties affordable in perpetuity. The difference in our arm for housing would be that we're trying to preserve the character of our community because of this huge tragedy that happened. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they can uh, uh, accomplish uh, this goal. For sure. And and Paulton recognizes that, uh, you know, this has never been done before, but also there's never been an, a, a tragic fire like this. This is unprecedented. And so she shared that, you know, it, it's, it may sound far-fetched, but these things can be possible. And they're exploring legal options for various scenarios, like buyback clauses for families who aren't able to rebuild on their property now but may want to in the future. 
uh, easement instead of land ownership. They're exploring all different, you know, partnerships, leases with families where, you know, the land trust would own the land and the families would own the home that might be rebuilt on it in the future. They stress they're still learning and figuring out all of this and what's possible. Autumn Ness is a community organizer who has helped in the establishment of the land trust. She describes how this process could work. People often think of land trust as one of two things, either a conservation land trust or an affordable housing land trust. But you can actually be both. And um, I'm learning from a lot of people that I really respect in this field that there's actually a third option as well, that there's a place where conservation and community and housing and economic development all kind of can merge. Conservation doesn't mean that you buy a bit of land and put a padlock on it and no one can ever go in there again. The way that this is working, again, we're still fleshing these ideas out, is somebody doesn't want to but needs to sell their land and they got an offer from an investor. They come to the land trust and they say, hey, can I partner with you? And depending on the land trust's resources and the parcel, the land trust may say, yes, okay, we're going to buy your parcel and put it into trust. And then in five years' time or 10 years' time, when we all know a bit more about what Lahaina is going to look like, the trust can decide with community input, is this parcel suited for affordable housing at this point? Is this a culturally sensitive property that never should have been built on in the first place? And then the trust puts each parcel in one of those buckets and then figures out all with community input how to proceed. The parcels that are deemed suitable for affordable housing, then we get to decide, okay, is there an opportunity to lease or partner with the family that sold this parcel into the trust and get them back on their land? There's just so many different possibilities. Yeah, it's a tall order, uh, you know, it, but I, you give them credit for coming up with this idea and see if they can make it work, if they can make uh, get some money to uh, buy this land. It's true, and they've done a lot of research. They said they've talked to all different types of land trusts across uh, in Hawaii as well as across the country and, you know, bringing in resources and, and legal advice again to see what those possibilities may be. And, you know, it, they have a long way to go. <laughs> they recognize that. They're still early in the, in the stages of exploration, but they are starting to fundraise. Uh, they have a website that I is too long to list on here, but you can go to the web to uh, the HBR website and check them out if you want to find out more or if you want to donate. Yeah. Pause. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if they can get uh, investors like, um, I don't know, Jeff Bezos or uh, um, Oprah Winfrey, but we'll have to see. But thanks so much, Catherine. Who knows? Thank you. That was HPR reporter Catherine Cluett-Pactel talking to us about the Lahaina Community Land Trust. Support for HPR comes from SMS Research. For over 60 years, providing market research, public opinion surveys, and social and economic impact studies to Hawaii businesses and organizations. Online at smshawaii.com. Today on The Daily, a recent string of attacks across the Middle East have raised concerns that the war between Hamas and Israel is spreading into a wider regional conflict. My colleague Eric Schmidt on the efforts underway to prevent that. I'm Katrin Benhold. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Many people will be commemorating the 131st anniversary of the overthrow of the Hawaiian Kingdom next Wednesday, including a group over at the University of Hawaii. The three-day Kuhome Aloha Summit will be held on the Manoa campus to mark the occasion, as well as to honor the National Day of Racial Healing and the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with UH Native Hawaiian Affairs Program Officer Punihei Leip to talk about how the event hopes to stimulate cultural healing in Hawaii. Why is it important for Hawaiians to reflect on the event? So I'm actually going to invite us to think about how it's important for all of us who call Hawaii home to think about the overthrow because it affects all of us, right? That we are a part of America today, whether you like that or not, affects all of us, right? That we no longer have a queen affects all of us. Many of the policy decisions, right, or all of the policy decisions affect all of us today. But that other piece you're talking about is so incredibly important. How anyone who has lived here for 
an amount of time. Hawaiian, not Hawaiian, local, not local, you know, kind of frees up when we talk about the overthrow. And we know or we're learning that anytime there's a kind of a, a trauma that occurs in our family, right, in our communities, if it's just us individually, if we don't deal with it, that's not very healthy, right? It's just going to fester. And so what we're inviting folks to do during Hawaii Kuhume Aloha, which is a three-day event this year, is to really reflect on our past here in Hawaii, all of us who call Hawaii home, all the different communities who have called Hawaii home over time, to reflect on our past and the different kinds of stories that we can share with each other that help us to understand what is it like to live in Hawaii for you and for me and for them? What's been challenging? What's beautiful? Part of our TRHT work, that first T, which is around truth-telling, is an invitation for us to expand our narrative, to create a more complete and complex narrative, if you will, of our communities. Because if we want to work together to figure out how we're going to take care of this place for the future, we got to know each other's stories a little bit more. Yeah. And so that's a huge part of what this event is for, not just for Hawaiians, but for anyone who calls Hawaii home. One thing that really impressed me about all the interviews that I've done with people who have either survived the Lahaina fires or are working on the recovery process is that they're doing it not at the exclusion of all other ethnicities. Everyone has constantly talked about how it's it's a community effort. Everyone, uh, whether they are Hawaiian or not, everyone that is part of the community is working toward the recovery of Lahaina or what they would like Lahaina to look forward to. Do you feel like we've learned to become more inclusive or have we always been inclusive that way? I think we, we've known this for a long time. The efforts that are happening on Maui are very Hawaiian because we don't exclude and say only you over there and me over here. Once we understand our pilina or one of our relationships, any of you know the multiple ways that we're related, that we're connected, we invite you in, right? And I think that you know there was a moment in time where maybe in some spaces, some folks had to pause and say, wait a minute, if I'm inviting you in, you gotta take care of me too. And that hasn't been happening. So maybe we need to go over here and have a discussion on the side and figure out how do we make sure someone's taking care of us, we're taking care of ourselves, ultimately so that we can be the way we've always been, which is to alohaku, alohamai, to, you know, to give love and to receive love. I think that we are seeing, in some senses, a healed version of ourselves able to come forward and say, this is the way we do it in Hawaii and we're going to reclaim that. And I think it's beautiful. And I think that's what, you know, when we talk about UH Manoa and our goal of becoming a Hawaiian place of learning, that's one of the incredibly important pieces is that we have to help people understand these concepts like aloha that gets misappropriated a lot and overused. But really, what does it mean and what does it look like for all of us? What do you think needs to change in order for Native Hawaiians to heal from past injustices? I mean, I think it's a multi-pronged approach for sure. I want to invite us to think about not only what Hawaiians need to do to heal, which is incredibly important, but like the journey that we can all be on in terms of healing. One of my favorite things about the Truth and Racial Healing and Transformation Framework, or TRHT, like I said for short, is it invites us to think about these pillars, right? So truth, like I was saying earlier, like truth telling, you know, narrative creation. We all know that, you know, the idea of the danger of a single story, mm -hmm. right? And the master narrative. And so how do we create more complete and complex narratives of who we are? So we can think about that for Hawaiians, right? In a sense, much of what we know and we're connected to via our language and our culture and practices have been cut off. And we, we've seen over the last at least 30 years kind of a, you know, a resurgence or renaissance of being able to reconnect. Lots more work to do, but we're on that pathway. But we can also think, for example, about what other folks who call Hawaii home, how they've been disconnected from their cultures and their languages and their practices. And that's incredibly important, too, because when we're hurt, right, hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter who you are, right? And so when we're hurt or we're disconnected, we tend to repeat that, right? That's what intergenerational trauma is about. And so it's an imperfect concept, but if you want to talk about the whole culture of Hawaii, right, and Native Hawaiians and the, and the healing process we need to be on, we also have to have people who are going to receive the aloha that we know how to give when we're ready to give it again. And if other folks are still hurt and not really, really ready to receive and be in, in community and be in interdependence and connection, it's not going to work. And so I think what we're seeing in Lahaina is many, many communities, right, coming together, giving and receiving aloha. And that in itself, of course, is healing. But I think everyone, for different kinds of reasons, are prepared to do that. 
That's beautiful. And that's the model that we need. That's everyone coming together. You've mentioned the Native Hawaiian place of learning and that the University of Hawaii at Manoa is committed to becoming a Native Hawaiian place of learning. What does that mean? So in 1986, the first report was written called the Ka'u Report. And it was some folks from across the 10 campuses who came together in response to the question that was being asked, where are the Hawaiians in the university? At that time, about 5% of all students across the 10 campuses were Native Hawaiian. And so, you know, some folks were starting to ask, what's going on? We were really grateful for those questions at that time. Over the last 30 years since then, four reports, four big reports have been written with recommendations on how the university system, but also specifically UH Manoa, where I work, can become a Hawaiian place of learning. If I summarize all of those recommendations, I would summarize them in two ways to describe our goal of becoming a Hawaiian place of learning. On the one hand, a ton of recommendations that kind of fall under the bucket of being more responsive to Native Hawaiians. Native Hawaiian students, Native Hawaiian employees, Native Hawaiian communities, right? How to be, be more responsive to their needs, but also the gifts that they bring, okay? On the other hand, is this idea of becoming more reflective of Native Hawaiian culture, values, principles, practices, right? So that things like overused, but so powerful, like aloha, right? Mm -hmm. That these, these concepts, these practices that we, that we know that are rooted in Hawaii, that all people who call Hawaii home, that we touch as a university, can grow, can learn, can connect, and can heal from. So I like to talk about it like that. Responsive to Native Hawaiians, but re reflective of Hawaii for all people. The Hawaii Ku'u Home Aloha Summit is coming to UH Manoa campus January 16th through the 18th, right? Yes. Can you talk about why people should come to the summit? If you live in Hawaii, there's something you love about Hawaii, right? Because it's way cheaper to live in other places. And so I think we're feeling it. If we haven't felt it before, we're feeling it now. But I think we've been feeling it at least since the pandemic, if not before, that we got to figure out how we're going to work together, right? We are going to offer some reflection, some tools to become present with ourselves, one another, with Aina. And then we're also going to offer opportunities to really dream. And I think we all need hope right now. We need hope, but we also need courage, as one of my friends, Dr. Chip Fletcher, says. You know, so how do we have some tools? How do we e equip ourselves with tools and get to know other friends who might be interested in this kind of work so that we can start to really, well, continue to build the Hawaii we want for our grandchildren? Punehei Light, really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much for coming into the station. Mahalo. That was Punihei Leip talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. The Ku'uhome Aloha Summit takes place on the UH Manoa campus from January 16th through the 18th. It is free and open to the public. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website after our show. Acclaimed New York Times food writer and Punahou alum, Legaya Michan, spent this week as a guest teacher at her alma mater. She grew up in Niu Valley in East Oahu. Her father's English, her mother's Filipino. Michan is also the co-author of uh, Philippinex, uh, Heritage Recipes from the Diaspora. And, fun fact, she was a receptionist here at Hawaii Public Radio back in 1993. She sat down in our studio with the Conversations Russell Subiono to talk about the intersection of culture and cuisine. I watched a ton of TV shows about cooking and food and, you know, how many times can you say something is delicious? So, how do you write about food and still keep it fresh and engaging? So, this is the the big problem with writing about food. When I first started out, I was writing restaurant reviews, and I said to my editor, I am running out of words. There are only so many ways that I can say something is sweet or sour, or that it's crunchy on the outside and creamy on the inside, which all the delicious things are, or that something's laced with or suffused with or spiked with or riddled mm -hmm. with some ineffable flavor. My editor said, stop writing about the food which sounds crazy because my job is to write about the food. But what he meant was find the story behind the food. Listen to the people who make it. And that completely changed my approach. So now 
when I was writing about restaurants, I started to ask a lot of questions. I did a lot of research. The truth is, I didn't know anything about food. I had to learn on the job, and I still feel like I'm learning. I'm an internal student. So every time you go into a restaurant, even if it's food you're familiar with, even if I go into a Filipino restaurant, I really don't know enough. I've now helped to write a cookbook about Filipino food, and I still don't feel like I know enough. And so I just keep researching, and I keep asking questions, and I keep talking to people. Because what makes food interesting is where it comes from and how it changes over time. You know, we have all of these arguments about food. People feel so passionately, and they want to say, this is authentic, and this isn't authentic, or this is mine, and it's not yours, and you can't make it. And so there are all of these fights because we care so much because it isn't just fuel and it isn't even just something we eat for pleasure. It's something that's connected to our childhoods and connected to our our parents and to our, the culture we came from. And for people, especially if they get separated from that culture, it becomes just a way to keep certain memories alive. So it means a lot to yeah. us. It's much more than fuel. Like you say, my brother used to own a gym and his mantra was always, food is just fuel. And I'd be like, I don't know about that. I don't want to just drink protein shakes the rest of my life. <laughs> Speaking of culture and cuisine, at the end of 2022, you wrote three successive articles dealing with culture and cuisine. Those three kind of jumped out at me. It seemed you were exploring a certain thread regarding cuisine and, and culture. And so I thought it was interesting. And when you think about it here in Hawaii, it's almost kind of hardwired into our genes here to share our cultural cuisine with other people, right? Mm-hmm. My wife's a nurse, so she's always getting lumpia from her Filipino patients, yes. uh, which is nice. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I love lumpia. Another example is Hawaiians living on the continent. You know, they open up poke shops. Do you think that there's more risk or more benefit when cultures start sharing their cuisine more broadly through restaurants, through cookbooks, through cooking shows? How do you feel about that? I think it's super complicated. So I think that the impulse to share is is completely the right one and that the benefits far outweigh the negatives, but there are negatives. And, and sometimes what it is is that Food can be taken from you that you haven't chosen to share necessarily. So that when poke first became a trend on the mainland, it wasn't people from Hawaii who had moved to the mainland. It was people who had come to Hawaii or knew it and probably had wonderful intentions, but then changed it a little bit or took it out of context, didn't really credit where it came from, didn't really understand what it was. Mm -hmm. And... uh, it's a complicated question. I, so when I first wrote about poke, so the New York Times wanted to do a piece about all the new poke shops in town. This was back in 2016. And they asked me to write about it, which made sense because I was the only person among their food writers who was from Hawaii. But after I wrote it, they put an accent mark on poke, on the E, hmm. because they said that most of our readers won't know how to pronounce it. And I said, you can't do that. It's, it's a Hawaiian word. It, it doesn't have an accent. And you don't put any of the diacriticals mm-hmm. in Hawaii in any of Hawaiian words. Why, why are you putting a diacritical that does not belong? But they didn't listen to me, and they, they put an accent mark in it. And some people in Hawaii got upset. I thought, oh, great. I can never go back home. <laughs> I have brought shame to my family and my name. So a year and a half later, I said to the Times, I said, you know, everybody knows what on the mainland knows what poke is now. We don't need the accent. You can take it away. And I want to write a piece where I go back to Hawaii and I talk about what poke really is. So they let me do that. And that ran. And some of the people who had been so mad reached out to me and said, you did good, sister. And I suddenly <laughs> felt like this is a redemption. I, I, I made it back in. And this is part of the struggle of wanting to tell these stories It's wanting to tell them right. I don't know everything. Just because I come from Hawaii does not make me an expert of any kind on Hawaii. I am still learning a lot. So I want to tell stories that are true, but I also can't be the only ambassador. We need more of us out there to do that. Uh, I've kind of strayed from your original question, but again, I feel like that generosity to share, it benefits all of us. It makes everybody's food more interesting. And at the same time, I don't want people to just take these things and then forget where they came from and not, or not care. Growing up, 
I heard someone once say, all Filipino food is based on a dare. True or false? On a dare? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, no. Come on. <laughs> Are you thinking specifically of dinaguan or... Uh, <laughs> yeah, like blood meat yes, or... Yes, or they call it chocolate meat to oh, get chocolate the kids now. To, to, to eat it. Well, so it's so interesting. I didn't even eat that much Filipino food growing up because my dad was the cook in my family. And he made adobo. And it was great. But there's so many different kinds of adobo. So it's very exciting to me now to see so many Filipino restaurants opening up, doing really different things. There's a new Filipino restaurant in New York that served dishes I'd just never seen before. Oh, wow. it, was, it was as part of a $135 tasting menu that you eat entirely with your hands. Oh, awesome. Fantastic. Before we came into this room to do the interview, I took you on a little tour of the station because you were a receptionist for a short time here at HPR. What memories do you have of that time? I, I know it was short. <laughs> oh my goodness. I remember answering the phones a lot. And I remember people would call in and they would be mad about the music they'd been playing that morning and they would have complaints. And so it was my role to feel those complaints so that they wouldn't actually bother the person who <laughs> had chosen the music that morning or or when the radio station went down because of the equipment because of rain mm -hmm. people would call in very angry and say I expect this to be back up and so my role as a receptionist since I had no power to correct the situation was just to listen and to say I'm, I'm so sorry about that <laughs> those are my primary memories <laughs> Lagaya thank you so much for coming in I had a fun time talking to you oh it was so fun thank you for having me and that was New York Times food writer Lagaya Michon talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Michon will be giving a talk tonight at 6 p.m. at Punahou School. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website after the show. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, specializing in residential and commercial building projects. Learn more about services at greenbuildinghawaii.com. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but y'all, are we in a new era of black filmmaking? I don't think I've ever seen so many nuanced black stories and performances getting nominated during award season. I'm digging into some of the top contenders like American Fiction and a special conversation with the star of The Color Purple, Fantasia Barino. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon. It's not every day that students in our public schools get a lesson in a cappella, but a group from Yale is visiting this week in advance of a free public concert on Saturday. We got wind of the Yale Alley Cats performance from a former Alley Cat, Honolulu Council member Tyler Dos Santos Tam. He just may make an appearance on stage along with other Yale alum from Hawaii. We talked to Alley Cats, Charlie Calkins, and Quinn Evans. The group worked with students at Princess Ruth Ke'elikolani Middle School, the former Central Intermediate in downtown Honolulu yesterday. They're also meeting with students at Kalihikai Elementary and Farrington High School tomorrow. Charlie Calkins starts us off. We have a lot of fun with these workshops because not too long ago, a lot of us were in elementary school, middle school, high school. Some of us singing in choirs, others not. But yeah, so during the workshops, we will typically start with a little performance from us and then go into some vocal exercises to make sure everyone is warmed up and ready to sing. And then we've got one arrangement, one of our favorites called uh, Everybody Wants to Be a Cat from the Aristocats movie that we really like. And that's typically our go-to. And we'll spend some time teaching that in kind of sectionals with parts and then go into performing it all together to uh, give everyone the experience of singing a cappella and holding a part and, of course, singing Everybody Wants to Be a Cat. <laughs> well, I have seen the Yale Wolf and Poofs in performance here in the islands, and folks may not be familiar with the Alley Cats, but you have come here before, and, and so, so tell us a little bit about your group. So the Alley Cats are one of Yale's underclassmen acapella groups, so the Wolf, you usually will take a gap year, and you travel the world during that year, but the Alley Cats are where you would spend the first three years of your acapella experience. And there are so many at Yale. There are 17 of us, so lots of competition there. But the Alley Cats 
are one of the oldest. We were founded in 1943 as, as a jazz group. And then we've expanded to include kind of every genre since then. So we sing a little bit of Motown, a little bit of modern pop, some of that old jazz, of course. And one of our big identities is also touring around the globe. So this is a big part of what we do every year is coming to places like Honolulu and doing performances and engaging with students all around the world. And Quinn, jump in here. I mean, what's it like when you work with these young students who love music? Yeah, I think that's one of the best parts of being in the group. I mean, just last week we were at a school in San Diego, and it's really cool to be able to sit directly in a room with someone who is in the position you were in maybe five, six years ago, just starting that choir journey and really singing with them and teaching them some of the stuff you've learned along the way. So I know one of my favorite parts is going through how are we breathing correctly, how are we making sure we get all the posture set up and everything like that, because I know that's stuff I found really valuable. And so being able to have that dialogue with those students, learn from their experience and share a bit of what we've done is really fantastic. And then they also get to come up and sing with us, which is super fun, of course. Well, you are doing a stint over at what was the former Central Intermediate School, K.A. Likolani Middle School. And then you'll be at uh, Kahalanui, a retirement uh, community. And you've got a performance and workshop over at uh, Kalihikai Elementary. Yeah, exactly. And then you've got a, a larger performance that the public is invited to at Farrington High School. So, so talk about that. Yeah, so super lucky that we're going to have a, a big public concert in Farrington High School's huge auditorium. So we would love to see everyone interested there. That'll really be kind of a classic Alley Cat concert. We'll be singing some classics, some, some newer arrangements from Sam Smith and Disclosure to Temptation and going back to our jazz roots, of course. And yeah, it'll be free admission and beginning at 4 p.m. is when the concert will start. Doors opening about 30 minutes before that. Can you recall when it was that you decided, you know, for both of you, that acapella was the thing that you really wanted to connect with? For sure. I think that's something, one of the coolest parts about being in an acapella group with people from so many different backgrounds from all across the country and even all around the world is that we all come from kind of a different artistic background. I know that for me, I went to arts high school and I wanted to come to college and keep doing music without necessarily having a major in it. And so I knew that Yale had a really, really strong acapella community. Um, it's all student run. So that's one of the best parts as well, is that you really get this experience of actually kind of running this group and making it what you want it to be. And so I saw that and I was like, I know that I want in. I definitely want to continue music. And you get this kind of experience as a leader and an incredible group of friends. So I think even when I was applying to college, I kind of knew that that was something that I would want to be doing. But then there are also other people who had maybe sung in the shower and knew that they wanted to sing more. And then they got to Yale and heard all the groups perform at jams and really were attracted to the Alicat sound. And so you have really a diverse kind of array of experiences that lead people into the acapella group. Yeah, because you've got, what, some athletes, you've got the science nerds. I mean, just just for folks sure. that, that uh, share this love for acapella. Yeah, nobody's actually majoring in music. We have electrical engineers. We have people doing directed studies, which is basically Yale's kind of classical literature coursework. So you have people with a ton of different interests all coming together to make music in all the different ways that they approach it, whether that's theatrical or opera or choir. Everyone brings something a little different to the table. And Charlie, talk about why this group and, you know, the concerts that you do is so impactful to young people. I'd say a, a, a big part of the kind of alley cat performance is that we really try and look engaged and facial expressions and kind of go all out, um, leave, leave nothing on the table and, and really get an engaged performance. So that means really focusing on our music, but also really looking like we're having fun and all of that. And also singing songs of all genres. So songs that people can connect to and, and happy songs, sad songs. And obviously we, we mix in some, some jokes and some skits between between the songs too, just to make it kind of a, a super entertaining and, and, and engaging performance that hopefully leave people with a good feeling and a good opportunity to listen to music. Obviously music, music in general is, is an awesome way to connect people because everyone can kind of feel a beat and recognize and, and love music. So it's really awesome being able to perform for, for so many people. Is this trip here the first for both of you or have, have you been to Hawaii before? This yeah, this is my first. I'm super excited. Yeah, my, mine as well. Just kind of landing off the airplane yesterday and looking yeah. out after I had kind of done a lot of, lot of planning beforehand, seeing photos. It's, it's really an incredible, incredible state and island. 
And so, gosh, you know, what are you looking forward to when you do the international trip, the concert in China? Oh, wow. There are so many things. I think what I'm really most looking forward to personally, and I know everyone probably has a slightly different answer, um, but I know what I'm looking forward to the most is the cultural exchange element of it. Um, so when we go over to China, we're going to be working with students at high schools and universities around the country, and we'll be putting on joint concerts, having like chats with them about what American life is like. Um, I think there are a lot of opportunities when you go abroad just to even talk about the baselines of what do you do every day when you wake up in the morning? Um, because I know that, especially for a country like China, where there's not a ton of cultural exchange currently happening, you have this opportunity to be kind of this ambassador of American culture and to learn a lot about what they're doing in their own home country. And so I think it's a really cool opportunity when we go abroad to meet directly with students, to talk to young people and see what the experiences are like around the world, because it's pretty different than ours. And that's just such an eye-opening experience, at least for me. And what about you, Charlie? What are you looking forward to? Yeah, um, I definitely echo what Quinn said. I'd say um, one added element is that we've got a group member from China. Um, he's obviously doing um, a ton of work planning all of that. And for the year and a half I've known him, I've, I always ask him questions about what it's like and how it's different than the U.S. and all these sorts of things. And now we're actually going to be able to go see a lot of things that he's talked about, his, his house, his high school, his favorite, favorite places in Beijing and also around the country. So that's something I find the most special about these hometown tours, as we call them as well, when you go to where someone in the group is from. Oh, that's a great connection. Well, I wish you all safe travels as you, you know, make your way to schools around Oahu. And hopefully the next time you guys can hit the neighbor islands, because uh, I know there are lots of schools yeah. that would love to hear your music. Thank you both so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right. Hope Thank to you. S- hope to see you this weekend. And that was Charlie Calkins and Quinn Evans, a couple of members of the Yale Alley Cats, a student a cappella group performing at a free concert this Saturday, 4 p.m. at the Farrington High School Auditorium. And we'll leave you with their rendition of Everyone Wants to Be a Cat. <laughs> Well, that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, we have a Hanaho show for you focused on food sustainability. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.